Hi, this is Roger Green, executive producer and host of Surfing the Net Tsunami. This week, we are offering three separate conversations from our episode, How COVID-19 is Changing Patient Management and Clinical Trials. In this conversation, the first one, our guest, Dr. Manal Abdulmalik, discusses how a rough week in patient management led her to envision innovative ways to incorporate telemedicine and mobile technologies into patient care. Stephen Harrison and Louise Campbell build on Manal's concept. Before this, I never thought of it deliver as a double entendre. Hope you enjoy this and hope it pushes you to think differently. Drug developers, investors, researchers, and corporate executives wrestle weekly to understand what is happening in commercial development of NASH medications. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and forecasting and pricing guru Roger Green as they discuss the issues affecting the evolving NASH market from their own unique perspectives on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. Been a challenging week for me on the COVID front, I must say. Professionally, uh, lost uh, two patients and personally, uh, son of a friend of a family. So for the first time in this epidemic, it's it's touched me closer than it has in the in the nine months past. But I have felt it this week. You know, you're one of I think five or six people I know well who has said that to me about the last week. It's just it's just been a tough week on COVID front as well as everything else. Just I'm sorry to hear all that. Sympathies to you and to everybody involved. With that, we're diving in on the subject of interesting and large ideas that might improve. COVID treatment and prognosis for fatty liver patients in 2021. Now, what I'd like to do first, just take three or four minutes, describe your idea, discuss the specific liver problem related to COVID, if there is one that it's intended to address. And to the degree that you're comfortable, what do you see as issues and challenges in implementing the idea that you're laying out? And if anybody wants to go first grade, if not, we can go back to, Stephen, if you've got the idea that you started on last week, we can go back to that one first. Okay, go ahead, Mona. So, um, you know, I started off saying, boy, this has been a tough week because I've come close to losing two patients as well as being touched closer as far as family and friends with this. But, you know, it, it got my wheels turning because in the midst of caring for my patient, I was able to use telehealth to remote video right into his hospital room in his local facility, which was two to three hours away from our tertiary care center here at Duke, and to have a face-to-face with his doctors there who were at his bedside as well as his family. And it really put things into perspective as to how I deliver liver related consultative care in a totally different way than I have historically done throughout the entire course of my career. And that being able to render care, not just in a clinical capacity, but as we talk about evolving science and and access to the absolutely needed therapies for our patients with NAFLD NASH and advanced liver disease in particular, and to do so using different platforms. And one of the thoughts that crossed my mind was, my gosh, I, I, I don't have my patient here, but I wish I could have been more accessible. And the thought of being more accessible is this framework of institutional-centered care and institutional-centered care for the delivery of clinical research may need to change as we develop new constructs. And Roger, you used the word re-engineer. And I thought that was a fabulous way of phrasing a different construct. And one of the fleeting visions I had, and I don't think this is new, I believe there was 
somebody in California that may have had a, a similar idea is, you know, as I was thinking about NAFLD and, and NASH and defatting the liver, this image of a van with a fiber scan in the back and a piccolo blood chest machine and a coordinator and me and the thought of deliver came to my vision plastered on the side of the van where I could go around and visit patients in their own space, render a fiber scan to those at risk who have diabetes or obesity or who I know may have elevated liver enzymes and take clinical care effectively to the patient, potentially in the road, but you really don't need very much if you're otherwise equipped. And much of what we use, especially as the technologies have become smaller, are portable. Consenting's portable, personnel are portable, fiber scan machines now are in the size of a, a handheld briefcase. And it is possible to reach the patient if the patient can't reach us because um, what brought this to light for me is in trying to care for my patients, and I, I don't think this is uh, new news, but you know, the hospital operator would say, well, we're on divert, the hospital is full, the clinic is socially distanced and we have density control for COVID safety measures. No, you can't add that additional patient where at maximal capacity. These are messages that are resonating because right now we are so busy caring for our COVID patients that the access that we had for caring for less acute chronic disease has changed. And there is this element of patients who have chronic disease states who are older than the age of 65, which is very common for our patients who have NAFLD and NASH and who are diabetic, have a fear of seeking care for non-urgent matters while they are chronic, certainly, and do pose future risk. But they're not posing a risk to them today, and they're not posing a risk to them now. And so there is a sense of hesitancy and reluctancy to come to a large tertiary care center to seek care for their fatty liver disease. And so as I was reflecting on this, the construct of, do they really need to come to me? Can I go to them, whether it be virtually, rechange the platform for which I deliver clinical research, maybe on a virtual platform, maybe more ability to consent on a virtual platform, obtain screening uh, metrics in the absence of them having to come to a site, maybe a very quick lab and lead visit, maybe a portable fiber scan that, that is able to, to meet the patient outside the constructs of a big tertiary care center. The way I practice here might be very different than Stephen's model for practicing, but it is harder for patients to get in and out of a big institution and I think raised some very innovative approaches to how we can potentially do clinical research and render chronic care to patients with liver disease in the era of COVID. And I think the era of COVID is going to implement changes to the field of medicine, some of which will likely be here to stay and not necessarily a bad thing either. The delivery of telehealth, new constructs of cost effectiveness and doing business for caring for patients with chronic diseases and reassessing and re-equilibrating our healthcare utilization and resource utilization for higher acuity. So, Manal, thanks. That's a, that's a, a great answer and a great way to kick us off. So, Stephen, how would you make use of that kind of thing? Does it make sense to you? What would you do with it? So I think it's a fantastic idea. This this notion to deliver healthcare, you know, as a hepatologist to, to our patients, I think is fantastic. And, and we have the technology to do that. 
I was taking my daughter, my senior in high school, on a tour of TCU and SMU yesterday. And I was struck by these little mini vans that they had. And they were facility vans that they were able to drive around campus, through campus. They're smaller than cars, but you know, they, they were able to, to drive on sidewalks and that sort of thing. I mean, we don't need something that small. We can use just a regular van. But but this notion of carrying a portable fiber scan, an imaging device, it doesn't have to be a fiber scan. It can be any portable imaging device that can evaluate for uh, both liver fat and for potentially stiffness. I think marrying that up with a chemical analyzer like the Piccolo, and there's a lot of them out there. That one is particular one is made by Abbott. We're able to do real-time, in-the-field, chemical analysis by assessing liver-associated enzymes and imaging of the liver to tell us, is there a go, no-go? Is there a problem? Is there not a problem? And remember, the most useful way to apply a fiber scan is for its negative predictive value. And we know that 80% of fatty liver patients are unlikely to develop a liver-related complication. They're still at risk of metabolic syndrome, diabetes, this, that, and the other. But at least from a liver disease perspective, we can give them reassurance that today their liver is not significantly impacted by fatty liver. However, we can then go on to provide appropriate guidance in the form of counseling relative to diet and lifestyle and the need to potentially follow up with their PCP to address their comorbid conditions. But we've made that assessment in the field in a real-time situation. Now, the flip side of that is, let's say we have a positive test. We have an abnormal set of liver-associated enzymes. Again, to Manal's point, potentially we're able to, at a minimum, provide education. But we could go beyond that and even provide consultation as to ways to address further workup and evaluation. And that's the 80% solution to this entire problem. Taking it one step further and linking it back into my thought from last week, imagine having that portable van at a COVID vaccination site. So one of the nice caveats there is we know fatty liver patients are at increased risk for COVID and patients to a large extent, or maybe not to a large extent, they may be aware of this. They may not be aware of this, but that becomes an educational point as well. Just because you've been vaccinated today does not mean you can't get COVID tomorrow, right? So you still have to be vigilant. We still want to provide care for the comorbid conditions that exist concomitantly in the era of COVID. And so we can provide that opportunity to scan their liver at the time they're there for their vaccine. Now, I know since the last time we talked, we have opened up a large vaccination site at the Wonderland Mall of Americas here in San Antonio on Fredericksburg Road for those over 65 or with significant comorbidities. Well, who has bad NASH? Over 65, for sure, and those with significant comorbidities. So, you know, how cool would that be? These patients wait in line for three to four hours for a vaccine. Well, what else are they doing? They're sitting around talking on their phone or reading something on on their smartphone. Why not step over and get your fiber scan done and potentially uh, your AST and ALT checked? And, you know, the nice thing about the Piccolos is there's 16 different panels. You can do an HBA A1C there as well. Results come back in 10 to 15 minutes while you're still waiting in line for your COVID vaccine. And then remember, you got to wait 15 minutes after the COVID vaccine before you can go. And if you've had a prior issue with reaction, you have to wait 30 minutes. So I think it's, it's a great 
opportunity, how we would affect that, I think, is the issue because there's certainly costs involved with renting a van, with getting a fiber scan, getting the piccolo, getting the cartridges for the piccolo, making sure you have the right team members in place to do the scan, to interpret the scan, and provide, you know, follow-up care as necessary. But, you know, from a conceptual point of view, it, it seems doable. So to Manal's point, in summary, I think it's fantastic. Where could it be implemented? I think straight away, potentially, at some of these COVID vaccination sites. And this isn't limited to the U.S. I think, Louise, you've got a thousand vaccination centers being set up in the U.K., and, and I think also you were talking before the podcast about some of the populations that don't normally come to healthcare to be treated, but would in fact potentially show up for a vaccine. So these are the uh, the people that live on the fringes of society that may be at even greater risk for Nash. So I don't know if you, if you wanted to take the ball from me and run with it on what you were thinking there, but I think that's a fantastic opportunity as well. Yeah, I think I love what Manal said. I can see these, maybe it's just my extravagant mind, these mini robots round the wards and on the front of them is a screen and your consultant rounds will be purely on the robot to some extent with some doctors going round and the nurses. And therefore you can be, as you were saying earlier, in any location providing highly expert care. We now have surgery that can be done from one side of the world when they're operating on a patient in another side because of the touch techniques. So the technology is there to be able to share that skill. And for me, having lived in Australia for a while and still sort of commuting backwards and forwards when I get the opportunity, it's about remoteness. A lot of patients, particularly in Australia and a lot of the regional areas, I should imagine, of the US have to travel to get expert care. And I think what you suggested earlier is very exciting. The experts can be there with the physicians. It's teaching. It's, it's talking to the patients. It's education of physicians. That whole concept of trials being remote plus the ability to do that care. And I think COVID and the technologies that we now have can really move that forward and I think certainly vans with fibre scans, if you were to mass scan these people you could then use dynamic fat fraction and then you would only need to biopsy potentially the minority of patients because you've got a streamlined system using the technology the NIS4, the ELF, FIB4 any of those mechanisms but I think the one advantage that Stephen's quite right about I was talking earlier is that a lot of our centres seem to be currently open eight till eight and I can imagine that they will eventually open 24-7 and therefore we talk about sex workers, people who are rough sleepers, people who are trafficked, people who are abused, they're less likely to engage in the normal healthcare environment and we certainly have lots of teams that integrate and work very well with those areas of society and I would like to hope and I should strongly suspect that each of those teams has been given a vaccination portfolio to be able to access those people but I think Piccolo is an excellent type of machine that can do those testings we can do dry blood spot testing for HIV, hepatitis B and hepatitis C so all of these opportunities but they do take resources and I know we're very limited in resources throughout sort of the main and modern world and even less so those resources are available in the low and middle income countries but I say there are opportunities but I think going back to Manal's initial thoughts that absolutely can I see 
ward rounds in the future, instead of walking between the wards in different hospitals, your portfolio of patients is all over the country rather than more local to you, which all those mini Manals and mini Stevens running around little wards <laughs> with other teams fantastic thought. Now, I, th- I think as we reflect on this, you know, we wear several different hats. As a clinical researcher, my focus was on the potential for drug development, the early evidence of potential improvement in, in NASH and NASH resolution for some of these emerging therapies. And so there is an impotence and initiative to try and service as many patients with definite NASH as we possibly can. On the flip side of that, we are up against, you know, public health guidances and guidelines for which yet have not potentially fully kept pace in the absence of an approved FDA therapy have rendered a guidance that it may not be cost effective to do population-based wide screening as we've been talking about and maybe just to do due diligence and, and render vigilance for the highest risk cohorts because should you discover a patient with advanced hepatic fibrosis, certainly that does change clinical care and management and becomes then a cost-effective strategy for screening when dealing with patients who are likely in relatively short order to develop a clinically meaningful outcome for which there may be early screening surveillance strategies to, to change the natural course of their disease. So I think we walk a fine line between what both has been rendered by ASLD and, and easel guidances for population-based screening versus the hat that we wear when we talk about targeted clinical trials. And I'd be interested in other people's thoughts about this, but Ultimately, I do believe that we are going to move more broadly to high-risk screening initiatives, age over 50 diabetes, first-degree family member with liver disease. As a trialist, I certainly want to very broadly screen patients who could potentially benefit from emerging therapies, but I think we are certainly due for and will see forthcoming in the upcoming year new societal guidelines. Steve, what are your thoughts about that? I completely agree with you. There are certainly low-hanging fruit that I think we can more aggressively screen. And I think the hesitancy has been, you know, really analytics to tell us which group is cost-effective to screen. And I think, you know, recent work by Mason Nareden's group follows on the work that Kathleen Corey has done in this in this effort. Both are, are very well-designed looks at this. And I think some of the more recent data suggesting that the diabetics are a very cost-effective group to screen makes complete sense. And I think we could have predicted that. We just needed the data to support it. And I think that's, that's certainly happening now. And I would be in favor of that. And I hope the new guidance documents reflect that. But whether the guidance documents reflect that or not, it doesn't mean we can't do common sense things. I would be an advocate of beginning to screen these populations that are at increased risk for advanced liver disease. And I would say it's not just a diabetics. I mean, also a strong family history of liver disease would be another one. We all see patients that have a sister, a brother, a mom, or a dad that have liver disease. And Manal, every time you and I see those people, 
people in our clinic and we say, hey, do you have a family history of liver disease? Oh, yeah. My, uh, you know, my mother died of liver disease and she didn't drink. Immediately, our spidey senses begin to go up and we think about this patient's being at increased risk. So why aren't we screening those people like they're at increased risk? So absolutely, to your point, I think that's probably an area we move into more aggressively in 2021. And I think there will be some, some guidance that, that's forthcoming that, that, would, uh, that would support that. We hope you have enjoyed this conversation. If you have any questions about it or comments about the episode in general, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We are releasing two more conversations from this episode. Our next new episode will release on Thursday, January 21st. In honor of Martin Luther King Day, it will explore special challenges in treating disadvantaged populations in the U.S., the U.K., and other parts of the world, focusing, not surprisingly, on fatty liver disease and other metabolic syndromes. Stay safe and see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Drug developers, investors, researchers, and corporate executives wrestle weekly to understand what is happening in commercial development of NASH medications. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and forecasting and pricing guru Roger Green as they discuss the issues affecting the evolving NASH market from their own unique perspectives on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. 